welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. And I will continue to be happy because I know that by means of your prayers and the help which comes from the Spirit of Jesus Christ, I shall be set free. My deep desire and hope is that I shall never fail in my duty, but that at all times, and especially right now, I shall be full of courage, so that with my whole being I shall bring honor to Christ, whether I live or die. Philippians chapter 1, verse 18-20, through 20, Good News Translation Hello, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. We're thankful to be with you today. For this episode of Anchored by Truth, we are continuing our series on Paul's Places. By Paul, of course, we're referring to the Apostle Paul, who wrote almost half of the books in the New Testament. In this Paul's Places series, we are taking a look at Paul's letters to the churches that are identified in our Bibles by geographic names, mostly of cities such as Rome or Corinth. But the book of Galatians is named for the province of Galatia, which was a region in what is now modern-day Turkey. Today we are going to do our ninth episode in this series, so for anyone who has missed any of the previous lessons, we would strongly encourage you to go to our website, crystalseabooks.com, and check out the earlier episodes, as well as our other series. In the studio today, we have R.D. Fierro, an author and the founder of Crystal Sea Books. R.D., what was the biggest reason you wanted to do a series like Paul's Places? Well, I'd first like to start, of course, by thanking everyone for joining us here today whether it's on the broadcast or the podcast. We really appreciate your interest in the Bible, and we definitely appreciate your interest in understanding the Christian faith better, because that's what this show, Anchored by Truth, is devoted to. The Bible is a book that is firmly grounded in time and place. Said a little bit differently, one of the great things about the Bible is that we can test the accuracy by going to the details of geography and history, and we can determine whether or not the Bible is consistent with what we know from other sources. And when we do so, we find that the Bible is consistent with what is reported to us from other ancient sources that report about places and times contained in the biblical record. But let's hasten to add that just because there will be times that there are differences between other ancient writers or sources, this does not mean that the Bible is incorrect, does it? No, it doesn't. The Bible has often been proven right when others, scholars, historians, whatever, thought that it was wrong. Can you give us an example of what you're thinking about? Sure. For many years, there were questions about the actual existence of Pontius Pilate, And there were questions about the title of Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate, of course, was the Roman governor who presided over the trial of Jesus, and his name is pretty well known to most people, especially to all Christians. Well, Pilate's title was traditionally thought to have been the procurator of Judea. And we thought that, or many people thought that, because the Roman historian Tacitus, who wrote in the 2nd century AD, referred to Pilate as a procurator. But Luke and the other gospel writers called Pilate a prefect, not a procurator. 
The term prefect is translated in our Bibles as governor. Prefects were the governors in charge of larger Roman provinces. Well, the fact that prefect was the correct title was confirmed in 1961 when a two-by-three-foot stone was discovered that had a Latin inscription, and the translation of that inscription read as follows. I'm quoting now. Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea, has presented the Tiberium to the Caesareans. Well, this stone was not only archaeological confirmation for the existence of Pilate as an individual person, but it was also confirmation that Pilate was the prefect or governor of Judea. And we now know that the title procurator was used for the Roman governors in the 33 AD time frame, which was when Jesus' trial was held. This title only came into usage at a later time, during the reign of the Emperor Claudius, who was emperor from A.D. 41 through 54. During Claudius's reign, the title of the Roman governors shifted from prefect to procurator. Although the later Roman writers gave Pilate the incorrect title, the Luke and other gospel writers did not. They called him a prefect, not a procurator. And another example that actually applies to the book that we're going to be thinking about today, Philippians, is the title of the Roman magistrates who served in Philippi. Even though Philippi was located in Macedonia, which is in modern-day Greece, Philippi was a Roman colony. And we not only know that Philippi was a Roman colony from extra-biblical sources, but from the book of Acts. Luke, who wrote Acts, tells us in chapter 16 that, quote, from there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days, unquote. That's Acts chapter 16, verse 12 from the New International Version. And we're going to talk a bit more about the implications of Philippi being a Roman colony in just a moment. But just to provide a couple of additional examples of where the Bible was proven right, even when its accuracy was doubted, Luke, when he wrote the book of Acts, called the magistrates in Philippi praetors. Well, at first, many scholars thought Luke was in error. According to the scholars, the magistrates in Philippi should not have been called praetors, but dumirs. According to the scholars, two dumirs would have ruled the town on behalf of Rome. So, there were scholars who originally thought that Luke was being imprecise or was incorrect for referring to the Philippian rulers as praetors. However, as usual, Luke was proven right. Archaeological findings have now shown that the title of praetor was employed by the magistrates of a Roman colony. And it is now known conclusively that Philippi had been designated a Roman colony during Paul's time. Also, at one point, there was doubt about Luke's use of the Greek word maris with respect to Philippi. Luke referred to Philippi as the leading city of the, quote, district, of Macedonia, and he used the Greek word maris, which is translated as district. Well, one scholar, F.J.A. Hort, believed that Luke was wrong in this usage. He said that maris referred to a, quote, portion, not to a, quote, district. But archaeological excavations have now shown that the word maris was indeed the correct word. Archaeological findings, as they have come along, have again demonstrated the accuracy of Luke. So the big point we're trying to make is that there have been many times when people have doubted the Bible. There are even times when writers from antiquity have provided reports that differ from the biblical record. But in a great many instances, as further information has come to light, the Bible has shown to be right. As a general rule, 
archaeologic finds have often confirmed the reliability of the Bible, even in cases where the initial reports were in doubt. So one of the strongest reasons we have to trust the Bible is because it's overwhelmingly supported by evidence that comes to us from archaeology or other historical records. And this fact applies to the Apostle Paul's epistles that are many of the books we have in our New Testament. The content of the letters that Paul wrote to the various churches is consistent with what we know about those places and times. Amen. So today we want to take a look at the letter that Paul sent to the church at Philippi, and of course we refer to that letter in our Bibles as the Book of Philippians. As we've mentioned, Philippi is located in modern-day Greece. In Paul's day, the Roman province in which Philippi is located was called Macedonia. We can think of it as being northern Greece. Philippi was located several miles inland from Neapolis, which is on the coast. Neapolis served as a seaport for Philippi, so travelers coming from Asia to the east would often land at Neapolis. And that's exactly what Luke reported that Paul did when he made his first trip to Philippi. In Acts chapter 16, verse 11, we hear, quote, From Troas we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day we went on to Neapolis, unquote. Tarasus was on the west coast of the modern-day Turkey, which was called Asia in Paul's day. Paul didn't stay in Neapolis because Philippi was a much larger and more important city. Philippi was named after Alexander the Great's father, Philip of Macedon, who had taken over the city in 358 BC and renamed it after himself. Right. Philip of Macedon wanted the city because there were some very productive gold mines in the vicinity of Philippi, and Philip of Macedon needed the gold to finance his territorial ambitions. So Philip of Macedon fortified the city, not only because of the gold, but also because the agricultural land around Philippi was very productive, and Philippi was located on an important trade route. So it was a pretty important city, and Philip of Macedon wanted to make sure that after he got hold of it, that he kept control of it. But it seems that by the time the Romans took over Philippi, the gold mines had fallen in their productive capacity, and Philippi, the city's fortunes, had fallen with that decline in the gold. But the city was later revived during the Roman period because the Romans designated it as a colony. And Roman colonies outside of Italy, those were generally places where Roman military veterans were given land so that they would go and settle there. And when those Roman military veterans did that, they would import the Roman culture into whatever region that they settled. And by Paul's day, Philippi had regained much of its former luster. Its access to Neapolis, trade, and the fact that it had been designated a Roman colony helped it to again be an important city. Being a Roman colony, the city enjoyed many privileges that other cities in Macedonia did not. The most important of these privileges was the exemption from certain forms of taxation. I guess people didn't like paying taxes in those days any more than we do today. So if the Romans gave Philippi exemptions from some taxation, it would certainly have drawn trade and commerce into the area. And anybody who has read the book of Acts quickly finds out that when Paul and Silas went to Philippi, some truly remarkable things happened. First, Paul and his companion Silas got into trouble when Paul cast a spirit out of a young female slave. The slave girl's owners had made a lot of money because the spirit which had infested her, which was most likely demonic, had given her some ability to foretell the future, at least to some extent. So when the spirit was cast out, the girl's owners realized that they had lost their golden goose. 
So they complained to the town's magistrates, who had Paul and Silas beaten in public. And that was a problem because Paul and Silas were both Roman citizens. And Roman law forbid Roman citizens from being punished without a trial, and they weren't allowed to be flogged publicly. After some changes made to Roman law in the early 2nd century BC, a Roman citizen could not be tortured or whipped and could commute sentences of death to voluntary exile unless he was found guilty of treason. So the fact that Paul and Silas had been beaten publicly was a real problem, and the fact that they hadn't had a trial just compounded the problem for the Philippian magistrates. Right. And the magistrates realized the gravity of their problem the next day after they had beaten Paul. But it wasn't until after Paul had spent a night in prison where, again, something truly remarkable happened. Around midnight, Paul and Silas were singing hymns in the prison. The other prisoners were listening. And all of a sudden, there was this huge earthquake that shook the prison so hard that all of the prisoners' chains came loose. Well, the jailer rushed in, and he was so distraught that he was about to kill himself because he figured that if all the chains had come loose, the prisoners would have escaped. In the Roman system of justice, if a jailer allowed a prisoner to escape, the jailer could be held accountable for the escaped prisoner's crimes. But, as he so often does, God intervened and Paul assured the jailer everyone was still there. The jailer was so convicted, he wanted to know what he had to do to be saved. So the Philippian jailer has become one of the most dramatic examples of a conversion during Paul's ministry, hasn't he? Yes, but the story does not end with the jailer's conversion. Not only was the jailer saved, but so was the jailer's family. Well, the next morning, the Philippian magistrates decided it was okay to release Paul and Silas, but Paul was not going to let them off the hook that easily because he had violated their rights. So Paul told the magistrates' officers that they had sent to the prison that he and Silas were Roman citizens and they wanted a public apology. Well, when the magistrates found out that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they realized they were in big trouble. And they did apologize. But they also asked Paul and Silas to leave the city. Evidently, they didn't want any reminders of their malfeasance hanging around. And it's easy to understand why. I mean, let's focus on the magistrates' problem for a second. The magistrates had blatantly violated the very plain requirements of Roman law and justice. And that wasn't just a problem for them personally, but it was also potentially a problem for the whole city. Because as we have mentioned, Philippi enjoyed some tangible benefits for being a Roman colony, such as being exempt from some taxes and tariffs. Well, the magistrates knew very well that the authorities in Rome took a very dim view of provincial cities that violated the rights of Roman citizens. So the magistrates in Philippi were very well aware that if their egregious violation of Paul and Silas's rights got very much attention in Rome, Rome might very well retaliate, not just against them, but against the city of Philippi. So they wanted to sweep that under the rug. And Paul and Silas accommodated them. They left Philippi and eventually wound up in Thessalonica, which was about 50 or 60 miles away. So how does this relate to the letter Paul wrote to the Philippians while he was imprisoned in Rome? In a couple of ways. First, in the letter to the Philippians, it is very apparent that Paul had a great affection for the Philippian congregation. And we know from chapter 20 of the book of Acts and from 2 Corinthians that Paul had visited Philippi on at least two other occasions 
And part of this strong connection to the Philippian congregation undoubtedly stemmed from the dramatic way in which that church had been founded. And it's very possible that the jailer who had had this dramatic conversion experience became an important leader in the church in Philippi. And that jailer certainly would have been very grateful Paul and Silas hadn't fled the prison when they had the opportunity to do so, and that they hadn't tempted any of the other prisoners to flee, even though they also had the chance to get away. In doing so, Paul and Silas had effectively saved the jailer's life, his family, and their future. And that would have formed the basis for the Philippian believers to have great affection for Paul. The believers in Philippi would have known that not only had Paul endured insult and injury to found their church, but also they would have known that Paul didn't create problems for their city, even though he had a perfect right to. Paul's behavior had been a model of grace and mercy to them and all of the city. Right. And we now know that the Philippian church expressed their gratitude to Paul tangibly. Because in his letter to the Philippians, Paul makes mention of the fact that the Philippian believers had become very faithful supporters of Paul's ministry. Philippians chapter 4, verses 15 through 17 says, quote, As you know, you Philippians were the only ones who gave me financial help when I first brought you the good news and then traveled on from Macedonia. No other church did this. Even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent help more than once. I don't say this because I want a gift from you. Rather, I want you to receive a reward for your kindness, unquote. Now that's from the New International Version. Yes. So let's take a closer look at the timing of the events that we've been discussing. Paul's first visit to Philippi was during what is normally referred to as his second missionary journey. And most scholars believe that that second missionary journey took place between the years of about 50 A.D. to 52 A.D. And Paul mentioned Philippi at least a couple of more times during the later periods of his ministry. Well, it seems that Paul's last visit to Philippi may have been around five to seven years after the church there was founded, and that would have been a time that was close to the end of his third missionary journey. But some scholars believe that Paul actually left Timothy and Luke in Philippi even after he and Silas move on to Thessalonica. Luke wrote the book of Acts. In part of Acts, Luke says, quote, We went to such and such a place, or we did something, unquote. But in chapters 17 through 20 of Acts, Luke no longer uses we. He starts writing that, quote, Paul did this, or Paul went there. So it seems that Luke was not with Paul during the events Luke describes after Paul left Philippi until Paul again visited Macedonia during the latter part of his third missionary journey. Now from Acts chapter 17 verse 14, it seems that Timothy didn't stay in Philippi as long as Luke did. Acts chapter 17 verses 13 and 14 say, quote, But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, Some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Yes. So it, it seems likely that the Philippian church had a continuing reminder of what Paul had done for them, at least for some period of time. Luke was not overly concerned with telling us what he was doing. And Luke kept his account focused on Paul, because Paul was the apostle, and Luke always knew that. Paul was the one who was carrying the burden of the emerging church. 
So how long after Paul's visit to Philippi did he write his letter to the church there? A reasonable guess is that Paul wrote the letter to the Philippians in 61 or 62 AD. And most scholars, again, believe that he wrote the letter to the Philippians while Paul was imprisoned in Rome. So roughly speaking, there were around five to seven years between the events of Acts chapter 16, when Paul founded the Philippian church, and his last visit with the church before his period of imprisonment. And there were about four to five years between the last visit and when Paul wrote the letter we have in our Bible that we call the book of Philippians. And in those intervening years, the Philippians had often sent Paul support for his ministry. In other words, it makes good sense that Paul expressed a strong sense of affection for the Philippian church. He and they had a relationship that likely went back more than a decade. What else comes across from the letter to the Philippians? Well, there are two other themes that come across very clearly in Philippians. Joy and the need for endurance and unity in the church. Some form of the word joy is mentioned 16 times in Philippians. This almost seems strange because it's obvious from Philippian church that it has experienced some form of persecution. You know, and that's one of the great things about the Apostle Paul. Paul faced a lot of persecution personally, but Paul never lost his abiding sense of joy that he had for his own personal salvation, and he never lost an abiding sense of joy for the redemption that he saw God building in and through his church. You know, it's possible that the Roman authorities in Philippi never quite got over their embarrassment and chagrin for what they did to Paul and Silas. The magistrates in Philippi knew that they had messed up big time, so they probably carried around a spirit of guilt and fear that their abuse might come back to haunt them. So, even though Paul had moved on, they may have harbored some lingering resentment for the church he founded. Well, sadly, that's quite possible. The magistrates, you know, they had a limited ability to get at Paul after Paul had moved on. But the magistrates could certainly get at Paul's spiritual children who were in the Philippian church. And as we have mentioned several times during this Paul's Places series, the Roman authorities had an easy charge that they could level at the Christians of their time. They could easily accuse them of sedition or, at a minimum, disloyalty. This goes back to what we said earlier about the Philippi being a Roman colony. The status of being a Roman colony meant that its residents were considered Roman citizens. Rome designated certain foreign cities as colonies because it gave the Roman state places where they could award grants of land to Roman army veterans without giving them land in Italy or Rome, where the wealthy actually owned most of the land. Giving their veterans land grants in colonies outside Italy not only gave Rome a way to reward its military veterans, but it also extended the sense of Roman loyalty throughout its empire. And it also extended the amount of territory upon which it could draw conscripts the next time they needed to raise an army. For Rome, their colonies were a sort of win-win proposition. And so it would have made some degree of sense that a highly patriotic citizenry, like Roman military veterans would be, that they might have had some resentment for these new believers, these new Christians, because those new Christians would no longer declare that, quote, Caesar is Lord. The new Christians declared that Jesus, that Jesus is Lord. You know, by that time in its history, Rome had adopted a form of emperor worship. And so all of the citizens in the Roman Empire were required to declare their worship for the Roman emperor. 
unless those citizens were part of another officially recognized religion. And the Jewish religion was a recognized religion, but no one, including the Roman authorities, were quite sure of where Christianity fell. They weren't quite sure whether the Christians were Jews or whether they were something completely different. So the pagan ex-Roman military veterans would not have had much sympathy for the Christians' sensibilities. I want to emphasize, the Christians of their day are not disloyal to their government, but it would have been easy for the Roman authorities to make them seem as if they were. This might have added to the sense of persecution the Philippians felt and that Paul addressed in his letter to them. And there is one more attribute of the letter to the Philippians which we should address at least briefly before we close. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul seems to anticipate that he will very shortly be released from prison. And we heard that anticipation in our opening scripture. Well, it makes sense that Paul would tell the Philippians because of his long relationship that he had with them, not only because Paul knew that the Philippians were concerned about his welfare, but because it would likely mean that they would get to see him at least one more time. It's not that hard to get from Rome to Philippi by way of the Mediterranean. Paul mentions in his letter to the Philippians that he was planning on sending Timothy to them fairly soon and that he was also going to send one of their church members, Epaphroditus, that Epaphroditus would be coming home with Timothy. That all reinforces the big point that we're making in this Paul's Places series, the epistles, the letters Paul sent to the various churches we know in our Bibles by geographic labels, are consistent not only with the geography and culture, but also with history of the latter part of the first century A.D. Paul had a long and close relationship with the Philippian church. Timothy had spent time with the church even after Paul had moved on. The Philippians had sent Epaphroditus to Rome with even more support of Paul. Prisoners had to provide for their own support in Paul's day. So, Paul wrote our book of Philippians with a message that essentially said, quote, I think I'll be set free soon. I want to come to see you, but until I do, Timothy is coming again, and Epaphroditus is coming home, unquote. All that fits together perfectly. Let's close with a prayer, as we always do. Today, let's listen to a prayer of adoration for the one who leads us into the knowledge of the truth, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. A prayer of adoration of the Holy Spirit. Great and mighty God, you are the searcher of men's hearts and the only true joy for their souls. We worship gladly the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, you rule and reign with the Father and the Son. When the Son completed his work and ascended to the Father, you came to be our comforter, instructor, and advocate. At Pentecost, you affirmed your presence in the world and established your dominion in the hearts of those who belong to the Son. Left to ourselves, we could never stand against the wiles of the evil one. But in you, we have victory, for greater are you than Satan who is in the world. You are worthy of exaltation and adoration, for you are fully God and Lord. You regenerate our hearts and bring light to our minds. Since you fully possess all knowledge and wisdom, you are the supreme teacher who not only imparts wisdom, 
but also gives us the capacity to absorb and understand that which you teach. Lord, we pray that we would be sensitive to your leading and we praise you for being the faithful minister to our souls. Time and time again, you have gone before us to find the path that we should travel. You have never left us, even in those times we have grieved you or resisted your work. Finite man cannot fully comprehend the wondrous relationship that is shared by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We know that the three persons of the Holy Trinity are perfect in unity, holiness, and beauty. We marvel at the grace manifested to us by the Father's sending, the Son's coming, and the Spirit's abiding. Surely such love deserves the response of full dedication to the one who first loved us, and we pray that such commitment might mark our lives. We lift our voices in songs of adoration and with the angels cry, Holy, holy, holy is our God and worthy to be praised. We bow before the light of our lives, the Lord of the universe, the Lamb of God. In Christ's precious name, we pray and give thanks. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where... We're not perfect, but our boss is.